much. Good morning. I was blessed this weekend to uh, have the privilege of officiating my uh, nephew's wedding. And, you know, there are these moments as you get older, uh, you know, you don't notice that you're getting old. And then, then, the, then these little moments happen that allow you the opportunity to be reminded. And I remember last night uh, we were... Uh, during the wedding, there's, uh, I think it's maybe called the anniversary game dance or something like that, where everyone, Mary gets out on the dance floor and dances, and they start calling out numbers of how long you're married. And I've seen that game before, and you know, Jen and I participated, and we sit down rather quickly. I felt really old last year when I was at the Nolan's property for a wedding, and we won the dumb game. And uh, we were, I was like, how in the world did this, I did not anticipate that coming. And as the crowds faded, Jen leaned into my ear and said, I think we may be old enough to win this. And sure enough, we were. Last night, we weren't old enough to win, to win it. We've been married 30 years uh, this year. And, uh, but my parents have been married 51 years this year. And it got me thinking, I wonder around this crowd, does anyone raise your hands if you, ex if you beat 51 years? Oh, oh wait, there's hands. Oh, yes, yes, Butch and Linda. So, so do you mind sharing with me how many years you've been married? 58. Congratulations, mom and dad, if you're watching online, uh, you might want to spend some time with the Morrises. They have some things they can teach you guys over the next few years. And, uh, but I was thinking, it got me thinking as I was pondering that and pondering, I mean, times we played that game and how we've, uh, have, we've grown. Uh, we also recently lost the family dog a few months ago, which again, you may not be a dog person, you may be a cat person, or you might just be, why do you even care about animals? Uh, there's, I know we have the spectrum here, but I know that Sue Fernando stands with me here this morning. But, but one of the things about losing the family pet and, and we, made an, we made a deal of it. We, had the, we, we dug a grave and we all gathered around as we put her in. And, but what is really remarkable is not just the sentimentality you might have over the family pet, but as we reminisced the time frame from her as a puppy until she passed away a few months and we started thinking about all the events. She was with us for about 10 years. And, and thinking through that, that moment afforded us the opportunity to reflect on all the transitions that, that that little dog saw in our life as a family together. And, and how different we are as people and as a family than we were when we brought her home as a puppy. And then I was thinking about this anniversary dance game that we played. And one of the characteristics of long-term healthy relationships, whether they be with family or in a marriage, is that you've got to yield to transition. They never look the same. And if you insist on them looking the same, probably won't make it to that 58-year mark. 
What you have to be open to is the way that you as individuals are going to grow and that as each of you grow either together or sometimes you're on your own separate growth paths, that growth changes the culture and the nature of the relationship because you become more mature and hopefully you become more maturing of your partner. I mean, you become more mature and understanding of your partner and that understanding can deepen intimacy. The same is true with the way we walk with God. I am not anti-theology. Surprisingly, I'm kind, I can be a bit of a theology nerd, if not a theology bore. And, um, but the issue is when we live in a culture that relegates the gospel message to primarily a benefit for the afterlife, we tend to relegate it to matters of the afterlife. And I think that bears out if you study the movements of Christianity in the South and fundamentalist movements that, are, that, that emphasize this afterlife, there's also with it this uh, preoccupation with the end of days and the end of the world and how quickly it's all gonna go up in smoke and so forth. And what I have experienced in my community is, is then that eventually morphs into an anticipation for everything just to end or for you to get, uh, you, you become like a suicidal rapturist where you're not gonna ever take your life, but you're so miserable and unhappy, you're just constantly hoping that any day Jesus will fly you out of here. And so then I, I think that's dangerous because then the movement of God that's intended to inspire us to walk the earth as the manifestation of the redemption that God brought to us in Christ, we lose sight of that and we get preoccupied with the hope of when this all gets burnt up or ends and we get to fly away. And so therefore, it is very important for each of us on our journey to remember you were invited to walk in intimacy with your creator who has dignified you with work he intends for you to do. And that work will then be an ongoing manifestation of the grace, mercy, and redemption of God in your generation, in your circle, in your geography, in your network, in your time frame. So that if we are going to be inspired by Ruth, we should be able to stand up every morning and get up and say, I was born for such a time as this. I was brought into it, the kingdom for such a time as this. We have work to do. We are not intended to live depressing, anxious, filled lives waiting for the great by and by. We are supposed to engage. And the heart of that is, flows from walking with our creator and in intimacy. But just like any other healthy relationship, we've got to be open to the reality that if that relationship is going to be growing and vibrant, then from one season to the next, it's going to change. And it should change. And if it doesn't change, we shouldn't interpret that as contentment and consistency. We should be somewhat concerned and alarmed.
Because as we continue to walk with God in intimacy, then we are growing in our understanding of God. And if we grow in our understanding of God, we should be growing in the extent to which we, we, we very naturally entrust ourselves to his grace and his kindness and his power. And as that, and, and as that happens, as we continue to deepen our, our, our trust of him, that will lead us to live lives of expanding obedience. And therefore, lives of expanding service and ministry. And the thing that I see takes that away is when we get preoccupied with a particular theology or ideology. And in this case, maybe about putting all our hope when we get to fly away in the afterlife. And if we're not cautious, if we're not mindful, what happens is this invitation to walk with the creator. Remember Paul's language. The language is to just keep in step with the spirit, which means you have matured and cultivated the skill to discern the leading of the spirit so that you can keep in step with the spirit. And what can rob you of that is subtly, the more we learn about God and the more we get inducted into a discipleship that's less the way of Jesus and more discipleship discipleship in an organized codified theology of a denomination or a movement, then before long, we start to serve our ideas about God rather than serving God. That becomes very critical for us to discern. And as we read the parables, we have to recognize that even though they weren't written to us, they are written for us. And we have to hold the tension of those two realities in balance because we want to learn from the mistakes of those who have gone before us. And what you will see in the New Testament is that people don't reject Jesus because they love their sin, which is the dominant theme that we want to talk about and we tend to say in churches. But if you look at the Gospels, and particularly if you see the confrontational elements, uh, anecdotes or stories in the Gospels and these parables, you'll see that people don't reject Jesus because of their sin, but because of the assurance of their theology. That's what motivates them to resist what God's doing right in front of them. Now, I don't want to be unsympathetic. There's good reason why they wanted to cultivate a faithful theology because that theology protected them against ignorant disobedience and it protected against proactive disobedience. It taught people how if you honor these beliefs about God, then that's the best way that you can glorify God. And if you glorify God, then you'll walk in his blessings. Part of those blessings are protection. And the reason why we no longer have our homeland and we are living under the oppression of an occupied foreign nation is because we were unfaithful. So then, then the urgency and the fear becomes even more intense to make sure that you're faithful to the ways that they were once unfaithful to. So the teachers of the law would go even, would go a step further. And so the idea would be, don't just know the law, don't just know the, 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 the line in the sand that you can cross, but draw a line 20 feet before that line so you don't even cross into 20 feet of, of, of dangerous territory. And then all of a sudden, then we met, they, would, they managed their lives and their relationship with God, and they managed the control of the congregation through this emphasis on this particular ideology until the point it blinds them because Jesus embodies the actual presence of Yahweh and comes and challenges points of misunderstanding with some of their ideology. 
and they rightfully struggle. There, it, it is normal to feel, feel fear and concern when you're being invited to grow and maybe expand your thinking about that. We shouldn't feel guilty about that. It's natural because our thinking and our assurance of, of seeing the world right is part of what gives us comfort as we navigate the chaos and uncertainty of the universe in which we find ourselves from time to time. But this idea is very important. Now, we're going to read this parable, and we're going to spend a little more time on their story this morning, because when you take the parables and jump too quickly to our story, you miss the point. And this is one that I have missed the point on many, many times in the past, both in my reading, in my devotion, and in my preaching and teaching. And so I think it's really important that we take a moment here, roll up our sleeves, pop our back, roll our necks, and let's just dive into a bit of Bible study this morning. So we're going to jump in here in Luke chapter 19, a a passage with which you'll be familiar, Luke chapter 19. We're going to read verses 11 through 27. And, and uh, we'll pick up in verse 11. As they were listening to this, and we will in a moment look back to what they were listening to. Because that phrase is critical for how we interpret the rest of the parable. In fact, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go for it. Repeat after me as they were listening to this. Okay, so this is critical. Because as they were listening to what Jesus is saying and what just took place before this parable is the reason why Jesus is motivated to then launch into this famous parable. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable. Now look at this, because. So now again, we're going to get parameters for how we interpret and apply the the parable. The problem is for modern Christians who don't appreciate the fact that the Bible was written for us, but not to us, it can be a little discouraging because none of these parameters really are going to apply to us. So now we're going to eavesdrop. We're going to listen in on what's going on with them. Then we're going to step back and say, okay, what does that tension tell us about the potential blessings and pitfalls of the way we navigate our understanding of God's will and the kingdom of God. Uh, He was telling them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. These are the two realities that motivate. They've listened to what just took place He is gathering near Jerusalem, which is going to be the last physical trip he takes to Jerusalem. And he told them because he discerned or heard from them that they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Verse 12, therefore he said, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then to return. So here we have a character who's departing the land with the promise that at one time, at some point in the future, he will return. When he returns, he will return with a new title, king. He called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minus. He told them, engage in business until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. Now remember, he is talking to his fellow Jews. He's talking to a people who are defiant 
defined by this powerful, passionate relationship that Yahweh has chosen to have with this nation. They're very well aware of their history. And in fact, in this time, the teachers would have been very zealous for them not only to learn their customs, but their history, because learning the history of a people is how you preserve, is, is how that people preserves their identity, especially when they find themselves in a nation occupied by a foreign people. Now, having said that, this phrase that he uses in the parable, saying they hated him and they didn't want that man to rule over them. Does that remind you of any narrative that we find in the Jewish scriptures? Old covenant scriptures. Jog anybody's memory. If it does, you can raise your hand and shout it out. I don't care. I'm Pentecostal, so. There's a story when Israel decided they wanted a king. Did we get it on the front row? Very good. You get a free water after church today. <laughs> In that story, Israel's at one of her crossroads because she's being offered a king. The king she's being offered is Yahweh himself. He will be her king. And they say no. We don't want you to be our king. And what they say is, give us a king who will fight our battles for us and so that we can be just like all the other nations. Conformity with the kingdom of man rather than the embracing of a new vision of the kingdom of God. That's what happens. Samuel gets pretty ticked off about it and upset and a little depressed. Little, little myopic, takes it personal. And, and in this time before the Lord, what does Yahweh say to Samuel? They didn't reject you. They've rejected me as being their king. So now we've got a very similar language being reemployed by Jesus right here in this parable. I'll read verse 14 again. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. At his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to so that he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, master, your mina has earned 10 more minas. Well done, good and faithful servant, he told them, because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. Now, mom, I love you, but this is not about me needing to make my bed so that God will bless me whenever I become an adult and want a good job. These are the kinds of things that we do with this. You know, do a good job here, and then, you know, that Jesus said it himself. No, that's not what Jesus is doing here, but I digress. Uh, after his return, having received, uh, okay, uh, verse 18, the second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, you will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here is your mina. I have kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you. Would you repeat after me? Because I was afraid of you. 
And this, if we're not careful, if we substitute ideology for intimacy, we will begin to misinterpret and misapply the heart of the Father. Because ideology will always be harsher than a heart of flesh, than a person. So he has a unique perspective of the nobleman who became king. He understands the heart of the king differently than the other two who were bold enough to go out and work in his name. He says, I have kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you since you're a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. He told him, I will condemn you, look, by what you have said. So this is interesting. He's not necessarily saying, you're right, I'm harsh, therefore you're in trouble. He says, let's take it from your perspective. But based on what you've said and what you've said about me, let's judge you from that perspective. And then he says, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping uh, what I didn't sow, why then did you put money in the bank? Why didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, it would have collected with it, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. But they said to him, Master, he has 10 minas already. Essentially, I added that into the text. I don't think I'm a writer of scripture, but that was for clarification. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But bring here these enemies of mine who do, did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. God bless you. Enjoy your lunch this afternoon. Make sure you invest in the kingdom lest you be slaughtered. Now, this is kind of the attitude that comes away from a lot of teachings on this verse. Only other translations call them talents, which makes, us e makes it easier for us to move away from the economic illustration that Jesus is uh, utilizing here and, and, and broaden the guilt, you know. And so I grew up thinking there were some that had one unit of talent, five units of talents, and ten units of talents. You know, there's, uh, we would all hope we were the ten. Most of us knew we were probably the one. But the critical issue was making sure you did you did with your talents that which would glorify God and if you did then that faithfulness would lead you to greater areas of success that would eventually be acknowledged and uh, if you didn't God would be very unhappy and he would take even the gift that he gave you away and we didn't really have a strong theology for what it meant to give it someone else um, but I don't know if you've heard something similar. And so, so there's, there's a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. It's very scary because the way this ends is not just that you might not get your talent taken away, but that you might be among the ones who are slaughtered. So this is a really kind of harsh view that we get about it. And that comes from reading it primarily as our story. But let's take just a few minutes and step back. The point of this parable, the point of all the parables is to communicate to the generation that is contemporary with Jesus. In other words, he's speaking it to the crowd that's around him around 2,000 years ago or so. Contemporary with Jesus, uh, who he is and what he's accomplishing. So these parables help illustrate where they've misunderstood the heart or plan of God, and he is clarifying who he is and what he is accomplishing, and he does it through the use of these parables of the kingdom. But here is what's critical in when we come to study the parables. The parables are not about Jesus and Christians. Now, I want to be a little careful here because I tend to get overly 
uh, uh, sloppy in my communication and cause unnecessary offense. But just, just, just hang with me here for a minute. When Jesus is teaching, Christianity doesn't exist. It is not a movement. It is not a religion. Jesus is operating as the last teacher and final prophet of the old covenant. That's what he's operating in. He's operating as a Jew who practiced Judaism, and he's teaching other Jews. And in the gospel, that's primarily the crowd he's concerned with. He's not really concerned with the Gentile crowd. That comes later with the revelation of Peter and Paul. But Jesus' mission is to speak a word of correction and hopefully rescue to the generation of Jewish uh, men and women that are alive during his time. Christian religion as a movement will begin a few years later, but it won't get codified as an organized religion till a few centuries down the road. So this is not about Jesus and Christians, although I'm not saying that we can't make application thoughtfully because we can. But we have to begin with recognizing that this parable, these parables are not about Jesus and Christians. They are about Yahweh and Israel. And we have to interpret them as the message between Yahweh and Israel. Now, this parable, when seen in that light, is pretty straightforward. But if we misinterpret it or we don't honor the context or the history, it can be pretty confusing, if not scary, the implications of the parable. So the question then is, because I think as we read our Bibles, because of the way they're written, we're just reading like as though Jesus is kind of hanging out, floating through earth, and from time to time, he just gets inspired to open his mouth and start saying really wise things that we can then put on t-shirts and coffee mugs centuries down the line. But it's not that haphazard. This parable isn't spontaneous. It is rooted in a larger story, which is we're informed about in verse 11. It says, as he heard these things, he told a parable. And he told them as they heard these things because he was nearing Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom was going to appear immediately. So as they heard these things, what things? Well, just glance in your Bible up a little bit and you'll see what is the story that precedes this parable. Yeah, story about a wee little man. A wee little man was he, climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. This is the story that holds the clue to making sense of the parable of the Minas. And so just as this, the, all of these events are taking place, so let's move up to verse 8 and read 8 through 10. And this is where we read, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house. Since he also was a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Very fascinating here. Because here in this story, in this historical narrative, there is this confrontation with the religious leaders who were the good guys. And the good guys, when they stand before Jesus, 
become the bad guys. Conversely, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a bad guy. Isn't it so strange that in general, when the good guys confront Jesus, they become the villains. And when the villains encounter Jesus, they become the good guys. That's what happens here. If you were comparing Zacchaeus with a prominent Pharisee of any stature, it would be very clear in that culture which one had worth, which one was worthy of respect, which one had a life that was worthy of a biographer. And it would not have been Zacchaeus. And yet, Zacchaeus becomes the example of the hero that's then illustrated in the parable of the talents. Zacchaeus becomes the tenfold steward, the fivefold steward. And the keepers of the ideology that blinded themselves to the heart of God become the wicked steward. This is the setup that Jesus, the tension that Jesus is creating in telling this story because Zacchaeus responded to Jesus with trust and immediate obedience. He responded to him, his message, and his kingdom. Then Jesus, then we're told that part of the reason he tells the stories is because they supposed the kingdom of God wasn't going to appear immediately. Now, Luke's already told us that, in fact, it has. If you go back and read Luke, you'll see that Jesus has been declaring that the kingdom is both near and the kingdom is here. So why the tension? It's because they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom that they wanted to see appear immediately was physical. The kingdom that was here and that was near was spiritual. And so Jesus creates this clarification with these stories. He is sharing this parable because they're still misunderstanding the nature of his kingdom. It is not physical, geopolitical kingdom rooted in power and violence, revenge, inequality, and injustice like all the other nations of the world. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom rooted in peace Nonviolence, forgiveness, turning the other cheek, and a calling to the poor and marginalized. A calling to equality, equity, and justice. And then he says, we're told that he also said it because he was near Jerusalem. His destiny in Jerusalem is one of the reasons he's telling the parable. Because this story is not about Jesus and Christians. It's about Israel and Yahweh. Now, because of that, we've already hinted to some of the Im imagery. This phrase, we don't want this man to be our ruler. This, I mean, I am a, I am a, a, a Native American Gentile Christian in 2023, and I recognize the reverberation of the idea that's coming from the old, uh, the Jewish scriptures. They certainly would have, because their scriptures are steeped in these powerful, dramatic prophecies. And these prophecies are talking about a time when Yahweh is going to come to Israel and he is going to do something completely new. And in those prophecies, there is celebration and there's warning. The warning of those prophecies is if you don't align your loyalties with what Yahweh is doing when he returns, then that which is being destroyed or moved beyond in his wake, you're going to be destroyed with it. These, these, these prophecies come over and over again, and there's a criticism 
that is a common thing among Israel. And the criticism is this, and this is important for us to hone into. The criticism to Israel is not, you're not worshiping like I said, because they were. You're not honoring the rhythm of the sacred calendar like I've told you, because they were. They were having their feasts and their fasts and their solemn assemblies. It's not because they were getting their ideology about the power and nature of Yahweh the Creator. That wasn't it. It's because their faith terminated in acts of worship, vertical worship, not acts of horizontal mercy. And the prophets time and time and time again warn Israel that they are missing the point that God's heart is not found in the assemblies and the cultic details of their worship, but in how they are treating the people that they hire. Are they paying them a fair wage? One of the enormous points of unfaithfulness with Israel is they never honored the year of Jubilee in which all debts were forgiven and all property lost to families was returned to the original family. Do you realize if Israel's system had have been followed, you couldn't have had a disparity, a, a, a huge gap between the classes. You could not become a multi-billionaire on other people's misfortune had their laws been followed. Because this, every 50 years, this great reversal was going to be happening. It was, we don't like this word, and I understand on an on a economic, politi- a philosophical scale, I don't like the word either. Okay? But the truth is, Israel was supposed to follow a redistribution every 50 years. And that was the expression of God's heart for his people, was this idea. So, so, so their scriptures warned them time and again. Yes, you're having the feast. Yes, you're gathering for your assemblies. But you aren't treating the people the way I'm calling you to treat them. I don't want you just to fast so that you can honor me with worship and say, I'm willing to be hungry and sacrifice for God. I want you to fast because I want you to share your bread with those who do not have bread of their own. So let's just look at one of these passages. It's found in the book of Malachi or Malachi, if you're Italian. I know it's an old, tired, cheesy joke, but it just doesn't get old for me. Uh, Malachi 3 verses 1 through 5. Now remember, let's, let's hone in on this. This is the warning to Israel. And this is the kind of, 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 of fiery rhetoric that some of Jesus' warning is also rooted in. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. In just a few months, we will celebrate when the Lord returned to the temple because it was when Joseph and Mary entered the temple with the baby Jesus. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi 
and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now we're going to continue on here, and I probably am going against wisdom here, but 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 it's so. I just want you to see what 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 seeps out of these passages about the heart of God. When we talk about God and judgment, we 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 use terms that make it seem as though God's judgment is rooted in retribution. You did wrong, made God mad, he's going to punish you for it. But can you see by the language of judgment in this old covenant passage that the, that the heart behind judgment is redemption? It's not retribution. It's redemption. It's reconciliation. It's restoration. It says the judgment that's going to come is so that it's because they're like silver, but there's so much mixture. They got to be put through the refiner's fire so that, so the impurity can be burnt out so that they can be pure. And this is the imagery that's used here is that the heart and the heart of God, the idea of judgment is for restoration and redemption, not retribution. Now let's set that aside and move on. We'll save that. We'll put it in like a, a, a mason jar and smoke it in our theological pipes later. Verse four, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days of, uh, as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be, be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So, so you see, even in this passage, the judgment moves from what's mentioned in this is these ideas of alternate spiritualities or in faithfulness within marriage or in faithfulness against your neighbor by swearing falsely. But, but, but what we see is as this list continues, what is highlighted is the way God's people treat other people. The most important transformation of our faith ought to be the continual renewal of how we treat other humans. That is way more important than how many hours we log in church. It's more important than how many verses we memorize, how many theology textbooks we read and know and can quote backwards and forwards. The most important mark of the redemption of the people of God is seen in the way they treat others, and in particular, the way they treat outsiders. And you see this scene continue on from the Old Testament and bring it into the New. And so, so, so then let's bring it back to the contemporaries of Jesus. When God's people prioritize fidelity to the system over the treatment of other humans, that's when God draws near for judgment. Not to destroy, not to retaliate, not to, not in retributive vengeance, but as a desire to heal, restore, purify, and redeem. And this is what is confronting the contemporaries of Jesus. The former system is giving way to the new one. To be free of the destruction that is coming 
with the displacement of the old and part of the blessings of the new, they must realign their loyalties. Whatever devotion was being given to the former covenant, the former system, the former way, whatever loyalties were being given to a particular narrow understanding of the nature of God, they had to be willing to let those go in order to embrace the fulfillment of the old in Jesus and the bringing in of the new. But they had to alter those ideological loyalties. And what is shocking is the destruction that comes upon many of the people of that generation in 70 AD comes precisely because they are unwilling to realign their loyalties around Jesus as Israel's Messiah. So you see how good thoughts about God eventually became the source of their rejection of God. It's a scary phenomena because the truth is I've seen that repeated in my own life. Perhaps upon reflection from time to time, you've seen it repeated in yours. It's as though a dated building is going down and Jesus is holding the door open and promising to take them to something infinitely better. When the building goes down, if they've chosen to maintain their allegiance to it and remain inside, they'll be destroyed as well. This is the reason why it mentions that he told this parable on his way to Jerusalem. And in the next section, we're told that as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he begins to weep for Jerusalem. And then the very next activity we're told is he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. All of these, these realities are connected to the telling of this parable, the conversion of Zacchaeus, and how they serve as pictures for what God wants to do, as opposed to the warnings that we see throughout the Old Covenant prophets. So, as we get ready to come to a close, the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is the current generation in danger of rejecting Jesus' kingdom to their peril, which make no mistake, the parable doesn't end pretty. It is talking about consequences, judgment, and peril. Why? Why are, in they, are they in that place of danger? This question becomes important to us because then we want to ask ourselves, is it possible that we might enter into the same folly, either as a movement or as a community or as individuals? They are rejecting Jesus' kingdom, because of the nature of the kingdom, he is promising and proclaiming, and it doesn't fit with their expectations. Number one, he orients his kingdom toward those who live on the periphery of respectable society. Number two, he models this value by offensively offering intimate table fellowship with the sinful and the broken and the unclean. Now that's not to say that's the only people. He also ate in Pharisees' houses. But there's not as much joy around those uh, dinners as there, are, as there is around the joy of the dinners that he has with the tax collectors and sinners. Number three, he insists that this has always been God's purpose for Israel. And, and again, if you look at the Jewish scriptures, you'll see these prophecies that highlight God's heart for the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant. 
Number four, he emphasizes this theme from Israel's sacred scriptures and corrects false interpretations that they have neglected, uh, that have neglected this primary purpose. And then he offers a challenge that is so offensive that they murder him for it. That's how intense the stakes are for Jesus in the commitment to this proclamation. Now, what Jesus has done here is he's challenging two deeply rooted ideas that allow the love of money, the love of status and power, the comfortable embrace of religion, and the disregard of the needy to peacefully coexist. I am not saying that we can't be responsible and good stewards and seek to live prosperous lives. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is when that becomes a preoccupation and the purpose for the people of God beyond our concern and our responsibility to those who are marginalized, then we are in danger of being unfaithful to the Lord who redeemed us and the Lord from whose grace we receive those blessings. So he's challenging this idea. Number one, it's the idea that we can be the people of God and participate in the new kingdom community and continue to order our lives around the pursuit of status and wealth. It is a call to rethink and renegotiate our loyalties. Number two, the idea that we can be the people of God and participate in the kingdom community and interpret God's word in such a way that it justifies separating ourselves from the needy. Jesus is offering a direct challenge to these two ideas. Now, I don't want to presume to know anyone's heart in this room. I'm only vaguely familiar with my own. But that vague familiarity forces me to reflect on my own life and to acknowledge that sometimes I tend to be more aligned with the religious practice of the Pharisees rather than the practice of Jesus. Where are you in that journey? Have you gone through your moment of offering that which you hold most dear on the altar as you trust Yahweh to provide? Where have you been called to let go of your assumed ideas about who you are and what you would do and submit those to God's purposes in Christ for you. To recognize that my loyalty is not about my comfort. And I'm not demonizing comfort. I quite like it. I mean, I'm pretty obnoxious with the staff if the uh, thermostat doesn't get adjusted on Sunday morning. To an embarrassing degree, I will confess to you. Pray for your servants in the church who have a tyrant leader who's hot-natured. But anyway, I'm not demonizing that, but what I'm saying is what is the primary orientation of our lives? At some point, when have you laid it down on the altar and said, Lord, I will trust you for whatever you're calling me to do, even though it frightens me, even though I'm afraid that if I yield my trust to you, that's going to require me to stop living in self-protection and exercise a vulnerability that makes me susceptible to misunderstanding and judgment of others. Because at some point, if we're going to grow, we have to be willing to make that loyalty choice. I don't know where it is for you. 
for me, it, 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 it probably happens in imperceptible ways, but there are a handful of times in my life when it was pretty evident and felt quite dramatic. What are your stories? What are your testimonies? And when you were called to let go of the former, to embrace the new thing God is doing. Now, here's my call to action. I don't really know what to tell you what to do with that, except for listen to the Holy Spirit and then repent, then realign, and then re-engage. And I hope you have the opportunity to do that on a pretty consistent basis because that's how we grow and change into one season to the next. If the Spirit bears witness to the truth that we're discovering here, I'm asking you to be willing to completely overhaul your understanding of what it means to pursue a life of faithfulness to Jesus. That's my small action point. Just rethink everything. Rethink everything in light of defining your faith, not by dogma, doctrines, or aspirations of the afterlife, but encountering the living Christ and responding to his invitation to simply follow him. To walk in intimacy with the creator as you keep in step with the spirit. What if... In neglecting this, we've been preoccupied with, with adventures and missing the point when we're being invited to truly, to a truly revolutionary vision of what it means to be human. I personally think this is one of the primary motivations behind the current ex-evangelical movement. It's because We've discipled people in adventures and missing the point rather than in the adventure of following Jesus. And now we've got a whole generation that says, no, thank you. Do I rebuke them? No. I say to you, good job. You're doing the right thing to look for something beyond the shallow control of religion. Follow Jesus. And if you have to wander outside the boundaries of particular toxic religious ideologies in order to be faithful to Jesus, then allow me to encourage you and hold the door open. And I would hope that what we are doing is recognizing we don't have to leave the movement of the Spirit. We don't have to leave the kingdom of God because ideologies have become toxic and missed the point. Instead of leaving the church, just run to Jesus. That'll be the source of the next great renewal and revival of our faith is a rediscovery of the simple call to follow me. What if our religion is not supposed to be about petty morality and the end of the world, but participating in the creation of a new world? as we live lives oriented around the triumphant kingdom of God that is already right here in our midst. Jesus doesn't want to just save the unconverted. He also wants to save an entire generation of professing Christians who recognize that dogma will never substitute for intimacy. Where are you on that invitation? And do you have the courage to respond to that invitation.